we have a playbook. And if we can run that play, we deliver engagement that often is 10x more than what the partner sees on their own. Hello, and welcome to Product Market Fit, a weekly podcast for early stage founders all about startups, technology, and growth. I'm your host, Moshe Poltrak, and my guest today is Laurel Taylor, founder and CEO of Candidly, a fintech platform aiming to solve the student debt crisis that has raised over $45 million from investors and saved students over $1.2 billion in loan repayments. Hello, Laurel. So excited to talk to you today. Hi, Moshe. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah. A lot to get into, but before we get started, dear friends, please help me out. I would love to get these amazing conversations to more and more founders out there. So leave a review on Apple or wherever you love to listen and share this episode on social media. Let's get the word out there. So Laurel, why don't you tell us what is Candidly and who do you serve? Yes. So Candidly, we exist to crush student debt and empower hardworking Americans to go beyond debt into wellness and ultimately wealth. So we are an embedded finance solution distributed by actually the largest financial services companies in the world today as a workplace benefit. So we are offered by employers as well as wealth managers, 401k providers, the entire ecosystem that serves employers and that are really bringing financial wellness, well-being solutions to market. And since founding the company today and really just last year alone, we receive incredible awards. So for example, we were named the best student loan management platform by FinTech Breakthrough Awards. One of the ones I'm most proud of is receiving an award called the Wealthies. We were named Forbes FinTech 50. We were just identified as Inc.'s best in business. And a Norskin Foundation selected us as one of the 100 uh, most promising impact startups focused on the future. So that was just so awesome to emerge from last year with that level of industry recognition for our work. Excellent. And just for a reference point of where you're at, I mentioned the 1.2 billion in debt savings to customers. Can you give us a sense of, of scale, either in terms of like number of, of companies that you work with or like how big are the companies that you work with in employee size or where you're at in your growth journey? Yes, happy to. Today, the number of employers that we're serving either directly or serving employers through their partners, like UBS, Vanguard, Empower, uh, PNC, Guild. We um, are serving about a thousand employers today. We're poised to serve one in four Americans. And we're actually just about to close another partnership that will enable us to serve one in three working Americans. And we actually serve employers of all different sizes uh, and scale. So the SMB market, the mid-market, as well as the enterprise, or what some of our partners call the large mega jumbo market. I think what's really exciting when we look at the average number of employees that we serve per employer from the second half of last year, our average employer size is now 22,500 employees. So very much the enterprise. The year prior, the average employee size was about 500 employees. So that was a, a really exciting change to see in the market. Congrats on on all that success and traction. That's amazing. What made you get into this? Um, I'm fascinated by your motivation in starting this up. Early in the beginnings of 
candidly, which was previously called Future Fuel, I had someone ask me, what makes you qualified to solve this problem? Because I actually didn't have any fintech experience. So fintech found me by living the problem. And you know, I grew up in a household where I knew I was going to college. I knew how I was going to college. That was never a question through scholarships, grants, federal loans, private student loans. My mom, who is a highly educated woman and social worker, making $24,000 a year. She knew she was going to take out a parent plus loan. What we didn't know between the two of us is that we would miss out on two decades of compound interest on wealth while paying down debt. And at the time, I was, I was going to school at MIT. I was leading a global business unit for Google. Absolute honor and dream to be able to pursue both opportunities. And honestly, I had a lot of shame it just like no one I knew talked about student debt or seemed to have to deal with it. And so I really dug into the data. And what I what I found from the MIT H lab in concert with TIAA, 80% of people who have student debt only pay down their student debt first. We move through finances in a sequential manner versus simultaneous. But that means that we can miss out on compound interest where it works its greatest magic in the first 10 years of our career. And also when hardworking Americans have their last opportunity to save before retiring. So these two precious bookends lost in that journey. And so that was when this became my path and purpose. And when I became uniquely suited to solve the problem, not because I was an expert in fintech, but because I had total heart and connection to the problem that had to be solved. Yeah, that definitely sounds familiar in how people think about the stages and the, the sequence of like, let me take care of my, my debt first. I'll, I'll pay that off and then I'll start saving. And like you mentioned, if you do that, you're missing out on the compounding of those savings and there's probably a more balanced approach. So let's go back to the product a little bit, just so I have a better understanding of what you're offering. There's a fintech component to it. There's an education component to it. I'm assuming a big part of what you're serving are employees that have debt that are, they're trying to pay down that debt and giving them tools to do that. But are you also serving employees that are maybe planning for their next level of education or or doing education while they're working and, and helping them do that as well? Yes. Great question. So as we've evolved over time, uh, we've gone beyond student debt. We are at the leading AI student debt and savings optimization platform that manages the full life cycle of education expenses. So, you know, exactly where you went, Moshe, we have a number of our clients, both employers and users, who said, it's awesome that you help people when they already have debt, but how do we mitigate that? And avoid debt in the first place. And so we now enable families to prepare a plan for college, to save in 529 plans, and then also to pay for college. So, you know, when I went to school at MIT, I was given a 9% interest rate on a student loan, even though I had a credit score over 800. And then I went to 20 different providers trying to find a lower cost solution course, that should be marketplace enabling uh, employees to access the lowest cost of capital. So we've built a robust experience on the front end of that journey. And what we've also heard from our employers and our channel partners is that, one, we know from the data, the student debt crisis and the savings crisis go hand in hand. But we also know not everybody has student debt, whether they actually didn't pursue college or they've already paid it down or they're one of the lucky ones that just were able to avoid it altogether. So we now offer an emergency savings solution. 60% of Americans don't have $500 for an emergency expense. And the ability to just auto-deduct from payroll, right, and automate those behaviors. 
So we're now, what's been really exciting is to be able to address the full life cycle of education expense, to be able to address the savings crisis, and then through really major policy levers that have been pulled, enable simultaneous progress between student debt pay down and wealth creation, which we'll talk about as well. Sounds like you're expanding to broader kind of financial wellness products beyond just the, the student debt. And I, I want to come back to the regulation or some of those those acts recently that have benefited your business and some of them perhaps created some turbulence <laughs> while they were being uh, discussed. The fact that you chose to go B2B to C from the get-go, right, to sell to employers and now sell through partners uh, instead of going B2C, was that always the approach? Did you try B2C first and then realize it makes more sense to go through the employer? I'm always curious about that decision because a lot of investors, especially the cautious ones, you know, in, in flyover country, well, I'm in Texas and, you know, like the coasts are very, you know, aggressive, go for the moon. Yeah. But over here, they're like, why don't you do the B2B play? Why, you know, why are you trying to do B2C? I'm, I'm curious about the decision making of that. Sure. It's a great question. So one, I have only known B2B. So my career has been in B2B solutions. Also, while at Google, I really saw firsthand what business models that are embedded in an inflationary CAC experience, which direct-to-consumer, I think there are many, there are pros and cons to both, right? B2B as well as direct-to-consumer. Direct-to-consumer, you have to potentially raise hundreds of millions of dollars in order to cover the CAC of that user. So I wanted to be in a deflationary CAC motion. And really the big bet that I made when founding the company beyond creating the digital experience was the belief that ultimately employers would offer benefits that address student debt within the workplace, just like any other benefit, 401k, tuition reimbursement, healthcare. And you know, knowing 70% of students are graduating with student debt it, that it would become a new normal. We have the honor and privilege to work with Altos who led our Series B round. And I once heard uh, there had there have been a number of discussions about, you know, based on your business model, you find the investor you deserve. And I thought that was a really interesting way of framing direct-to-consumer investors who love direct-to-consumer are not going to love candidly because we are B2B to C. Investors who really have a, a strong point of view on B2B or B2B to C or embedded finance find what we're doing super interesting. So, you know, it was a go-to-market strategy view, but also financing. I, you know, I am aware that only 1.4 to 1.6% of funding goes to women and that I would really, really need to stretch those dollars. And so I, I chose what I believe to be a more capital efficient approach. Really, really good point about the inflationary versus deflationary CAC customer acquisition in B2C businesses. If you don't have inherent virality in the product, like thinking like a PayPal, you have that automatic, like I'm sending it to someone. So there's a, an embedded customer acquisition in that. But a product like this, you basically be having to get each customer one at a time and that, that CAC can become exorbitant. You brought up fundraising. And of course, being a, a female founder, there's a challenge there, but also I would imagine being in the space that you're in, was there a perception that, you know, this is kind of a charity case, so to speak? There's a company that I advise that's building software and their early focus is on the nonprofit segment and there's plans beyond that. But just because of that, automatically investors have this immediate reaction of like, oh yeah, it's for good business. It's a charity case. 
it's SaaS vertical software and it's got all the same, you know, financial projections as any other vertical software. Is that a challenge that you faced when you were pitching? Obviously, you've raised 45 million plus from top tier VC. So how did you overcome that and convince investors to fund your company? I think it's really interesting because my experience and journey, when I first founded Candidly, we created a new category. And by the way, being in the education business, meaning you have to educate your customers about a new category is incredibly daunting. And because it was new, you know, I got a lot of kind of pats on the top of the head initially. <laughs> oh, just sweet. That's so, you know, but um, no, it's just great business sense, right? Our offering as a benefit reduces churn from 33% to 76%. So by the most sophisticated CFOs working for the largest employers in the world who say, this just pays for itself. This is just a self-funding proposition. 76% reduction in churn in healthcare, where the, the turnover is 30%. I mean, it's a really sound financial and economic argument. Our first seed check came from uh, Jim Palermo of, of Breton out of Boston and his operating partners, Mike Masterson and, and Doug Sullivan. And one of my favorite quotes, it was our first meeting and Mike Masterson is a former CTO and technologist. And he said, Laurel, I live at the intersection of altruism and greed and you're giving me both. <laughs> and so I just, you know, I just love that. And we are a triple bottom line company, so our investors are financial investors, but I think they also have decided, you know, Salesforce Ventures, it's the Impact Fund, Rethink Impact, uh, Altos, of course, Vulcan and Circano. These are tier one investors, but they've decided to put their money where they can do both. They can get a, a really strong financial return and do good for the world. Yeah, it's a fantastic story. And everybody remembers their, the first investor that took a flyer on them. So there's a special place in, in your heart, I'd imagine, for that. Going back to your growth journey, talk to me about some of those early days, getting to product market fit in those early stages. Was there a moment where you said, aha, we have it? Walk me through some of the stuff that you did early on. So early on, so we were part of the Financial Health Network, and the Financial Health Network is funded by Chase. So I was in the accelerator program. I did actually join a mini uh, accelerator programs in the beginning that really helped to operationalize key parts of the business, like Silicon Valley Bank uh, and Fiserv for our payments flows. And uh, Financial Health Network is backed by Chase. And I was sitting in a, you know, there's only, a, it's a very small cohort of us. I think it was like 10 a year. And the gentleman from Chase walked in and said, I just want to let you know, like, don't even try. Like, <laughs> you're all going to come up to me after this presentation you're all going to work with Chase. You're all going to want to know how to do that. And the bottom line is that is an impossibility for at least three years. Like you have to be SOC type one, type two, PCI and FISMA compliant. You have to be able to persevere a three-year sales cycle. You guys are probably, most of you are going to be out of money in six months. So you got to have three years of runway. You have to come in with the security posture in order to proceed past go. And of course, it's not what you want to hear, right? But it's real. And so uh, we started with incremental progress. It was a net new category. So which employers are going to be willing to offer student loan repayment and benefits that address student debt for the workforce coming in, micro employers less than 25, then the SMB, then the mid-market. Pfizer was our first enterprise customer, then Salesforce. Then we had a large group of employers from SMB to large 
enterprise, which really ultimately enabled us to realize our vision of being at the table. You have to earn the right to be at the table with these customers, employers, and with the largest financial services companies in the world who need proof points. What is your evidence that this solves a real problem, that people are willing to pay for it, and that you can do business with us as you know, Vanguard, as an example, again, as Empowered, second largest record keeper in the U.S.? So it was the momentum, you know, we, we 10 x our growth in 2022 was really our big inflection point to see that year-over-year growth. And then the policy levers were pulled in 21, 22. And, and that also, when we started the year in 2023, Secure 2.0 had just been passed on December 29th. And Secure 2.0... Had it been in market, my mom and I would have individually another $450,000 of retirement savings. And so Secure 2.0 enables employers to offer a retirement match based on qualified student loan payments. So where student debt is a blocker into retirement savings at 80% who just don't say, it's now quite literally a booster. And employers want employees to leverage the benefits that they're offering. And they want all employees and specifically non-highly compensated executives to participate in the 401k plans that don't fail discrimination testing. So this enables employers to engage a population that's disengaged, to get them into plan, enables record keepers and retirement plan advisors to increase the assets under management for any given employer or plan, as well as associated fees. And of course, enables hardworking Americans to, assuming like an 8% return, generate $450,000 in retirement savings, even if they never put a dime into retirement savings themselves. They work for an employer that offers a retirement match for 50% of the time they're paying down their student loans. That aligns with $450,000 at the time of retirement. That's four times what boomers have today. So what happened the first two weeks of January, all of these record keepers that we had been in discussions with for like five years. I mean, literally, I have emails going back to <laughs> 2017 exploded out of the gate to say, we were waiting, the legislation's passed, let's go. And so that was also a really exciting inflection point. Yeah, that's awesome. Those policy measures sound like they were a real wind at your sails, right? But preceding that, there was a lot of kind of turbulence from 2020 going to 2021, a lot of temporary measures. There was temporary moratoriums on, on debt repayment. There's a lot of talk about debt forgiveness. I'm curious how you operate as CEO of the company, trying to make plans and a roadmap where there's all this uncertainty. And I'm, I'm asking selfishly because I'm getting into the real estate space. And as you know, there's this massive litigation that's happening right now, you know, with agents and with the, the MLS. And it's going to be years before that's fully settled. And, and which way it goes is anybody's guess. How do you operate as CEO in that turbulent environment where, you know, you're at, at the mercy of whatever policy measures get enacted? So indeed, the coin cuts both ways. And when I founded the business, I made the big bet that policy levers would be pulled to incentivize employers because I believe Treasury wants to get paid back. And it's actually the federal government, right, that holds 90% of student loans. And that happened with the CARES Act, which enables employers to use their tuition reimbursement budget for past, present, and future and then the SECURE Act, which enables the retirement match. But yes, it has been a period of huge disruption. In March of 2020, as a emergency measure, 
it was first introduced now across two different administrations. If you have a student loan, it's a federal loan. You don't have to pay your student loan. And it's going to be 90 days. We're going to give 90 days of relief. So the moratorium on student loan payments where individuals didn't have to pay their student loans, that was extended nine times. There was so much uncertainty around, as you can imagine, organizational preparedness and responsiveness to that significant of a change and then going through it nine times when you think it's about to be over. And in quite literally two to three to five days before the moratorium was over, it was extended again and again and again. And if I kept doing that, it would be annoying, right? But imagine living it. (laughs) So, you know, that's one dynamic that we as a company had to navigate. And then two was uh, Biden's proposal for one-time forgiveness of $10,000 or $20,000 for certain income brackets and or the $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients. That was largely understood by the market as it's just all going to be forgiven. So nobody has to pay their student loans. All of this is just going to be forgiven. But at the same time, last year, even though the moratorium extended through September and the Supreme Court struck down their forgiveness measures kind of mid-year, we tripled the employer contributions flowing through our platform. So I think there are a couple of really important things there. Number one is leading an organization. It's incredibly important to stay focused on the mission of the company and why you exist. Because our can-doer community really cares about the problem that we're solving for users. And what we saw was just a tremendous amount of confusion. So the users we serve, what's going on? What do I do right now? Do I pay my student loans? Do I not? Do I get into an income-driven repayment program because there's only 60 days left on the moratorium and then I'm going to have to start paying. And then that happened nine times. So one is maintaining heart and stamina. And then two, from a product perspective, we released product, net new product, responding to the legislative dynamics multiple times. So for example, and I want to go you know too deep because I'll kind of geek out on it, but public service loan forgiveness. There were waivers that were introduced that were essential for workers to take advantage of because it make a massive difference in accelerating their path to forgiveness with narrow windows of time available to get into these programs. And they're complex. So we launched specific programs that enabled workers to take advantage of this unique point in time. But we were just fast twitching all over the place because the announcements would be made. And by and large, the industry was not aware of the change that was going to be announced. Student loan servicers, servicing the loans. I mean, kind of, so it was a period of, you know, really having to be incredibly dynamic. Hmm. It sounds like it requires a combination of one eye on the vision and then simultaneously being super nimble and reacting to any short-term fluctuations. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And it's it, not easy. It's the, the hand-to-hand, <laughs> the hand-to-hand combat. No, it's no, it, it's um, indeed. So over time, you you mentioned you were able to go from SMB to mid-market enterprise, and then you you have been layering in um, partner deals, right? Where you get to sell once, and you get a hundred or a thousand customers instead of selling hand-to-hand each company or each employer one at a time. Talk to me about some of the dynamics there. It's a fantastic channel for really any B2B motion 
if you can get there, because like I said, it can 10X or even 100X your sales efforts, but there is nuance there. I'd love for you to walk me through. At what point were you ready to explore those? And then how does it involve the founder? It's much more, you know, founder-led sales and, you know, you can't just hire a salesperson to go make a deal with Vanguard, right? It's a little bit different. So anything that you can share there would be helpful. Sure. So I think as the founder and CEO, many of these partnerships really did begin in 2017, 2018. And that involvement, direct involvement on major deals and major customers not sure I can imagine a better use of time. Revenue solves almost all problems. And what we share with our partners is our goal is to be the best partner they've ever worked with. And we know that's an ambitious statement. And that is our commitment to the customer, whether it's an employer directly or our partner. And as we've continued to serve additional partners, in the ecosystem, uh, Lincoln Financial Group is one we haven't spoken about yet. He's a phenomenal partner. There is a, the enterprise sales cycle, which because it's a new category, it has evolved over time. We had a number of net new partners enter into the sales cycle last year as a result of Secure 2.0 Passage. So they have compressed sales cycles from three to five years to six to nine months. That's another key inflection point that you asked about earlier, which is there's urgency. The partners we now serve as kind of the Intel inside as an embedded finance, they're hearing from their employers, this is a top three requested benefit. If you're not offering it, we are no longer considering you for our business. So they have to respond to defend market share, to increase market share in a highly competitive landscape. You know, as we've developed the sales team, which has been phenomenal. We have a you know, really like elite peak performance sales organization and more broadly, uh, peak performance organization. What we've learned is that channel partners, it's a continuous selling motion. We are selling those partners every day, just takes on a bit of a different shape. It's sales enablement internally. Sales enablement, more comms, marketing assets, because they have their own army that is descending upon the market. And we want to equip those athletes with a very simple 60 to 90 second statement that they can make followed by a quick qualification question. And some of our partners, you know, will run the pass all the way down the f- and others pass the ball to us at a certain stage in that deal cycle. So we have different partners who've configured themselves a little bit differently, but it is a continuous effort to stay in front of these relationship managers, account executives, account managers, and will be forever more so that we can have as much explosive momentum out of the gate because that hockey stick for any given partner, if that can happen a quarter earlier, three quarters earlier, a year earlier, compounding growth in the backed by VC companies, that's a life-changing event, right? In terms of momentum and market adoption. Sure. I wonder organizationally, because you have these parallel needs, right? You need to sell to the partner, market to them, get them on board. But like you said, it's not a, you know, a signature and now they're generating revenue. You have to empower them because they're going out there and selling for you. Do you have parallel marketing and sales teams or customer enablement, sales enablement, teams specifically dedicated by partner or by market? Like, how do you think of that organizationally? Or how do you enact it? Yeah. 
Yeah, we do. Absolutely. So it's a really close partnership between sales, implementation, onboarding, and marketing. So that that enterprise lifecycle is flawless. We have um, our NPS scores on implementation and onboarding is 90. Nine, like unbelievable. At the benchmark is 40. And our coaching is uh, NPS scores are 93. That's incredible. It's incredible. It's incredible. And also that's you know, again, I'm super grateful for the incredible can-doers that we have within the company who execute at that level every day is phenomenal. So we have organized around the account executive that's working closely with that partner. And of course, I'm out the ready at any time. I'm on the road a lot meeting with customers. Then it moves into the implementation, which is, of course, really where we're heavily engaging product and engineering, then the launch, which is our customer support team, and then ongoing. Now, the Marcoms, the level of engagement that we deliver, one of the primary problems we're solving for customers, whether they're channel partners or employers, is engagement. So we are solving specific problems. So where financial wellness will generally see kind of 4 to 5% engagement across an entire employee population, we're seeing upwards of 30%. And that's when an emergency savings isn't offered and layered on. So we have a playbook. And if we can run that play, we deliver engagement that often is 10x more than what the partner sees on their own. So we integrate that conversation about the Marcom's logic-based sequence to the user level very early in the sales cycle because the general reaction is no. The first reaction is no. No, you're not going to communicate to my customers, employees. No, you're not going to inundate them. We have to sequence this with our larger conversation and Marcoms that we're already delivering. And then we show them the data. And we say, okay, we understand. Those are super legitimate concerns, right? We can start that way. Can we show you other partners that have done that? Because this is what their engagement looks like when we don't run our playbook and it's not good. And here's what our engagement looks like when we can run our playbook. And it's an order of magnitude greater in terms of outcomes and financial outcomes that we're generating. So we're really trying to accelerate and compress that learning curve for each of our partners because then we're able to provide value much earlier in the life cycle of that partnership. And if there's one thing I've learned, and if there's one thing for any founder listening to this discussion, that has to be in the master services agreement. It has to be in the contract. Like we are able to communicate X number of times to the participants downstream because it's essential for engagement, for impact, for mission, and for value delivery to the customer. Right. It's so important when it comes to B2B to C, you have to think of the end users, not your customer, but you absolutely have to think about how they're using the product. You know, whether or not it directly drives monetization, if you're char- charging on a per user basis or, or not, it's certainly, if there's no engagement, you're, you're not going to have any retention. So even harder to do in an environment where you're two layers removed, right? Because you've got the partner and then the employer and then the employee who's the actual end user of the product. Any tips around product development and customer discovery to make sure that you're building tools for customers and, and comms for customers that are being used, that are valuable for the end user who's like I said, two layers removed from you. We invest significant time and attention. Our marketing department 
is very focused on the assets that we create for our customers, our partners, our employers to help them train the trainer, right? To help them understand the full value and the different capabilities that we bring and the user level assets that we have also generated. So we want to ensure that our customer really doesn't have to sit down and think when putting pen to paper on like, how do I introduce this? How do we talk about this? Should the CHRO announce that we're offering this amazing benefit to our employees? Absolutely. And here's the template and it's all written. And here's the library of assets. And here's the repository for how you gain access to that. It's always updated. We have actually not done deals and we have walked away from deals where we did not feel there was real commitment from the partner or where there would be access to the sales force. Because if you're selling through someone else's sales force, to be top of mind, for any person to talk about something in the field, they have to feel comfortable and confident. If they're not confident or comfortable, they're not going to talk about it. So we have to be able to train the trainer. And it's just something we've become really passionate about. Yeah. Super valuable lessons, not just in embedded finance, but you know, when you're selling in healthcare, often you're selling through distributors. And a lot of use cases, distributors or partners can be a great channel. But all of these things that you're talking about in empowering them to, to represent you well and, and effectively sell on your behalf, all of that needs to come into play. So it sounds like you have a, a pretty sophisticated operation in order to facilitate that. I wanted to ask you, dropped AI in a little earlier when you were talking about the product and, and the vision. How does AI come into play here? Is it something you know that you, you need to say because everybody's AI now? Or is it inherent to the, the core product and the vision for the company? It, it is inherent to the core vision of the company. And we've been using AI for many years, kind of before it was sexy. There are a few ways that we are leveraging AI that we're really excited about. One from a product and then others from efficiencies, which aren't as sexy, but are so important as you begin to scale in terms of unit economics, margins, the margin drives the mission, right? Margin drives the mission. So how to be more efficient in the delivery. From a product perspective, not to speak about this in the negative sense, but, but I am, I'm not a huge fan of content by itself because someone can have all the knowledge in the world, but if they don't take action on that, it is like I read a quote the other day, the man who cannot read is no different from the man who does not read. I thought, wow, that is so powerful. Mm -hmm. So we believe in micro actions and transactions that transform outcomes. Personalization of the user experience from the get-go if someone gives us two minutes of their life, we're going to save them an average of $358 a month. $358 a month. You know, where else can you get a four to $5,000 post-tax raise on an annual basis? So we want to get after it very quickly in the experience. So it's not generic. The user is going to provide us data in order to inform the approach. But as we're thinking about, for example, ChatGPT, um, you know, it's not particularly good at math. There are a few deficiencies. It's not good at math. It's inconsistent, can harbor biases, hallucinates. But when we combine underlying technology of large language models with portfolio optimization, and this is where our point of view that kind of the whole employee benefit space is largely focused on the asset side of the balance sheet, but the vast majority of Americans are in the liability side of the balance sheet. 
So we've created a proprietary portfolio optimization algorithm, which we call ALCA, which is the only bird that can fly underwater and above water as well as so here. Underwater until you're out of debt, you want to do that simultaneously. That is really powerful when you can combine large language models with portfolio optimization to address some of the deficiencies that we've talked about. And this is a API-only product we've had purchased by some of the largest life insurers, insurers in the world. And they're kind of plugging in our algo into their broader, because what problem are we solving for the partner? Revenue. We're a revenue driver for our partner. We're delivering greater revenue to the company on their core product by solving a critical problem that's been unaddressed that then creates cash flow and liquidity. And then that cash flow and liquidity can go into retirement savings, emergency savings, financial protection. So that's one area where our corpus includes all of the congressional records around all of the student debt programs, the income-driven programs, and the public service loan forgiveness programs. So we had already deployed that solution actually a couple of years ago in our starting of work. And now we've layered on portfolio optimization with large language models. Some of the other areas where we're leveraging AI that maybe aren't as sexy, but are very sexy when you look at the numbers (laughs) in the back end, in a few areas of our business loan statement reviews, statement reviews, applying AI to that to be able to remove the need to move through human review on all of that documentation, being able to provide decision assist on highly complex challenges around student debt that require like double consolidation and all these gymnastics. That's really helpful for our coaches to have a central repository to query for our customer support team to have so that we're giving consistent information based on our unique corpus and, you know, like a thousand hour plus of coaching calls that have been transcribed. Yep. The margin drives the mission. I like that. One last question here before we move on to our exciting lightning round. When we talked, you shared a contrarian take about hiring. I'd love for you to elaborate on that, if, if you would. <laughs> yes. So I think it's one of the most important jobs of a, of a founder and a CEO is to attract exceptional talent. And that is forevermore. The culture of any company is so important. And I think We have actually something really special with our culture. And so one of the consistent concerns that comes up across our can-doers is protecting and honoring and nurturing that culture, which is empathy, collaboration, problem solving, and humility, and having the humility to always learn from each other, put each other in, in, in for our users to be of service to them, servant leader mentality. So what I've also realized in the past, so I'm the last person to interview any candidate. My perspective previously was my job is to bring that candidate over the line. And now my point of view is it's my job to talk the person out of taking the job. We are a culture that works hard. We have a really strong work ethic. We are not for everybody, for sure. And I think often there can be a romantic notion of working for a startup. It's a total grind. It's relentless. And got to have stamina. I mean, it's like a hit run, but over a marathon, maybe a few or several, I don't know. So really trying to give a realistic day in the life to make sure that we're both fully informed before entering into a really precious relationship that is demanding. Yeah. 
That must be so hard to do, though, because that that candidate has gone through all the process, and then you're at the end trying to <laughs> convince them out of it. So hard. Mm-hmm. Reminds yes. me of what Brian Long said on the podcast a few episodes ago, that your core values should turn people away, that they're not there for everybody, right? They're, they're there to differentiate you and to be a selection criteria. Laurel, I'm, I'm really enjoying this, but we're running out of time here, and we'd like to close out with a lightning round, but I'm going to try something new. With our lightning round, I'm going to offer three different themes without you knowing the questions of each of these, and you get to choose the theme. The options are favorite things, heroes and villains, or how the turntables turn. It's like a game show. Okay, we're going to go with option number one. Okay, my most favorite things. Can you share a book recommendation? Actually, two. One fiction and one nonfiction. Ooh, hard thing about hard things. Just one of the best all time. And I read autobiographies. So just reading Nelson Mandela's, and also, I'll bring over, Good Power from Gina Rometty. Fantastic. Thank you for those. What are your favorite podcasts to listen to? Oh, oh, okay. I'm all in. Okay. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. Got it. Do you have a favorite bestie? Oh, hey, I think Jason. Yeah. World's greatest moderator. He's I'm very humble. Like he has a lot of humility. Cool. Can you recommend a movie or TV show that you've seen recently that you enjoyed? A movie or TV show? I need to spend more time <laughs> watching movies. Speaking, speaking of that hard work ethic, you need yeah, to relax I, a little bit. I, am, uh, I mean, it's, a, it's an oldie, but a goodie, Gladiator. Okay. Why not? I remember that one. That okay. A, yes. That's a good one. Uh, you know, the, the, the classics never die, right? <laughs> exactly. What's one thing that you've bought recently for under $100 that you love? One thing that I bought, okay, this is this is kind of ridiculous, but these. So I- Are those slippers? <laughs> these are slippers. And my mom and my niece, I took them to Tahoe for three generation um, holiday. And this is ridiculous. And we all wore these and they're right next to me. So as you can see, I'm still enjoying them. <laughs> That's wonderful. I love it. What's one core value or principle that you live by or try to live by? Humility, for sure. I mean, being a founder is an ass-kicking journey where you are humbled about every five seconds. <laughs> so really listening to others and also being independent of the good opinion of others at the same time. Amazing. Laurel, thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed this. Tell listeners how they can continue the conversation if they want to or learn more about Candidly and anything else that you want to share with the audience to close us out. And I'll put links to everything in the show notes. Okay. We can check us out at getcandidly, getcandidly.com. If you're a founder, please offer us, you know, it's a way of being inclusive and offering critical benefits to the full spectrum of wealth and wellness within the workplace. And, you know, just really appreciate the time today and would just say for all the founders out there, just keep going. Just keep going. Thank you so much, Laurel. Wishing you tons of success with Candidly and with everything else. Thank you, Moshe. It's a pleasure, pleasure to be here today. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening and joining me on this learning adventure. I really enjoyed that conversation with Laurel and hope you did too. 
please don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive review of this podcast to help us reach more founders and others who can benefit from listening to these interviews. Make sure to tune in next week when I will be interviewing Michael Saman, the boy genius who was the youngest engineer hired at Meta, later went on to Google and Twitter, and is now founder of Friendly Apps as we talk about the future of consumer social. As always, I'd love to hear from you. So email me at hello at pmfpod.com or reach out on LinkedIn or X. Until next time, wishing you rocket ship success on your startup journey.